is where I'd like to direct your attention this morning. We're going to begin by reading from verses 12 through 36 of 1 Samuel chapter 2. Uh, I was sitting down front here this morning and had reason just to give thanks to God for the number of people who serve in our congregation on Sunday mornings, and they serve so well. They read, they sing, they play, they um, teach, they care for babies, they pass out offering plates, they count that money that, that comes in. We just have so many people who serve uh, so skillfully in our church, and I am grateful to God for them. Uh, let's read, though, here, 1 Samuel chapter 2, verse 12. Eli's sons were scoundrels. They had no regard for the Lord. Now, it was the practice of the priests that whenever any of the people offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fork in his hand while the meat was being boiled and would plunge the fork into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. Whatever the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is how they treated all the Israelites who came to Shiloh. Even before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the person who was sacrificing, Give the priest some meat. To roast, he won't accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. If the person said to him, let the fat be burned first and then take whatever you want, the servant would answer, no, hand it over now. If you don't, I'll take it by force. This sin of the young man was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy wearing a linen ephod. Each year his mother made him a little robe and took it to him when she went up with her husband to offer the annual sacrifice. Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife saying, May the Lord give you children by this woman to take the place of the one she prayed for and gave to the Lord. Then they would go home. And the Lord was gracious to Hannah. She gave birth to three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. Now Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all the Israelites and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. So he said to them, Why do you do such things? I hear from all the people about these wicked deeds of yours. No, my sons, the report I hear spreading among the Lord's people is not good. If one person sins against another, God may mediate for the offender. But if anyone sins against the Lord, who will intercede for them? His sons, however, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. And the boy Samuel continued to grow in stature and in favor with the Lord and with people. Now a man of God came to Eli and said to him, This is what the Lord says. Did I not clearly reveal myself to your ancestor's family when they were in Egypt under Pharaoh? I chose your ancestor out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up on my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod in my presence. I also gave your ancestor's family all the food offerings presented by the Israelites. Why do you scorn my sacrifice and offering that I prescribed for my dwelling? Why do you honor your sons more than me by fattening yourselves on the choice part of every offering made by my people Israel? Therefore the Lord God, therefore the Lord the God of Israel declares, I promised that members of your family would minister before me forever, but now from now the Lord declares, far be it from me, 
Those who honor me I will honor, but those who despise me will be disdained. The time is coming when I will cut short your strength and the strength of your priestly house so that no one in it will reach old age. And you will see distress in my dwelling. Although good will be done to Israel, no one in your family line will ever reach old age. Every one of you that I do not cut off from serving at my altar, I will spare only to destroy your sight and sap your strength. And all your descendants will die in the prime of life. And what happens to your sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will be assigned to you. They will both die on the same day. I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who will do according to what is in my heart and mind. I will firmly establish his priestly house and they will minister before my anointed one always. Then everyone left in your family line will come and bow down before him for a piece of silver and a loaf of bread and plead, appoint me to some priestly office so I can have food to eat. I want to tell you this morning about one of the worst moments in my education. Uh, I have told you this story before. This episode, though, comes to my mind occasionally, and it's always accompanied by shame. This is not the worst thing that I have ever done in my life, clearly, but it was a low point for sure. It was my third year in seminary, and I was taking a class called Trinitarianism. It's a class about the theology of God. What does it mean when the Bible says God is the three-in-one Uh, It met on Tuesday and Thursday afternoon in the Lamb Auditorium of the Campbell Academic Center. Uh, uh, Lamb Auditorium is an amphitheater-type room, and I sat halfway back next to my friend Steve. And for the first of three weeks, I was the epitome of an obnoxious, disrespectful, ill-mannered student. I was confronted by this one day uh, when Mr. Kreider, who was the adjunct professor teaching the class, Uh, called me to his office. Um, Mr. Kreider was a doctoral student. This is one of the first classes that he ever taught, and he was unfortunate enough to have me as a student. Uh, I walked into the room uh, to his office, and Mr. Kreider was standing there in front of his desk, and he was nervous. He was nervous, and I, walking in, was uh, worried. Now, again, I know uh, you might have a different bent towards situations like this than I do, uh, but I I was nurtured in an environment where honoring those who are in authority is a high value. I knew why he wanted to talk to me. I know on the scale of evil, again, you have seen evil that is worse than what was happening in that class. It's very small and contained compared to what you have seen. But there I was. Mr. Kreider started. Your behavior in this class has been unacceptable. Uh, You have rolled your eyes at me. You've made snide remarks with Steve and laughed about them. And the tone of your questions and comments is argumentative and uh, dismissive. Everything that he said was true. It was absolutely true. Uh, I I would like to defend myself. Here I am. I'm going to defend myself. Here's what I'm going to say to you. Uh, My criticisms of Mr. Kreider were justified. I was right. He was wrong. Um, He once used an illustration about God that I was sure was not uh, biblical and particularly wrong. And during those first three weeks of class, when I talked to anybody outside of class of what was going on inside of class, I made sure to tell them about Mr. Kreider and my opinion of him. That's my defense. It doesn't matter, though, very much, does it? 
Mr. Kreider showed me more kindness than I deserved, he said to me. Uh, the official period of time to drop the class without penalty has passed, but I've spoken to the registrar's office and to the finance office. If you drop the class today, they'll refund all of your money. There'll be no repercussions for your GPA. You can stop and take this somewhere else, from somebody else. Or you can change your attitude and come back to class. You can decide. Uh, I did not think about that very long. Uh, he was right. He was clearly right. And he was more kind to me than I deserved. He was right. I was wrong. I apologized to him. I committed to change. And I left his office. Do you have a story like that in your life? Something that, that you, is similar? Uh, maybe if you've ever been a teenager, there had to be a moment, I would think, where you had doubts about the wisdom of your parents. And, and you made it known in what you said or how you responded to them. Maybe you have a, a school story like mine. Maybe you have a scene from work. I talk to a fair amount of people about their jobs just in my course of uh, talking to them. And I, I have learned, I think, over the years that, that most businesses, most companies are poorly managed. <laughs> even, even if you're... Uh, a boss is, is really pretty good at what he does or she does, they're still, they still have weaknesses that cause trouble for everyone. You find a story in your memory banks like, like mine. There's peculiarities to all the scenes. There's different consequences. But maybe you have something like that. The reason I told you my story like that is because I want you to think about it, uh, what it looks like when human beings are so disrespectful and dishonoring and accusatory to God. That's a subject that rises today, and it comes to us because it's at the center of the text that we just read. This is not about a student and his professor. It's not about a child and his or her parent. It's about a priest and his sons and about God. Verse 30, Those who honor me, I will honor. But those who despise me will be disdained. Here's the story of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas, and what happened to them because they dishonored God. And remember that this book that we've come to, that we're just starting to walk through Samuel, is the story of how God provided a king for his people. And it was collected together in the, the present state that it's in, this volume that we have, was collected together for God's people, the Israelites, after they had a long, long period of time in which they did not honor God. This is a story of how they got a king. Those people had just experienced the loss of their king because of this long trek record of dishonoring God. They didn't deserve God's king when this book first came into their hands. They didn't deserve God's king here. God here provides one for them. Um, the story of how God provided a king for them, we, we realize this, begins, begins with this wonderful woman named Hannah. We read about her last week, the mother in this story. Hannah is uh, like the nation. She was barren and she was oppressed. She cries out to God. God gives her a son. And here, here the son is in this story. He's, he's Samuel. He's in the background. In the foreground, though, is this high priestly family that's led by Eli. As part of preparing his people for the king that he is going to provide for them, God is going to clean house. And he's going to clean house with Eli. 
Eli is going to be removed from prominence, preeminence, in order to make room for Samuel. Just like later in the book, Saul is going to be removed from the throne in order to make room for David. And here's the story of how and why God removed Eli, and it has to do with dishonoring God. We should start with a basic assumption of the Bible. Here it is. This should not surprise you. God is worthy of honor. God is worthy of honor. He demands to be honored. This is the proper relationship between any creature and his or her creator. He is your creator. He is worthy of your honor. And honoring him means you live a life that responds to his presence. It's dominated by his presence. Your thoughts are shaped by what you know about him. How you spend your time and energy and money is uh, informed by what pleases him. You love, what, what you value is dominated by the things that he loves. That's what it means to honor God. This is, this is not the sort of honor that you give to your grandmother when she feeds you overcooked roast beef. I should probably explain that. Uh, my grandmother was a, a fine cook. She did a lot of things really well, and she was a fine cook. But as she got older, her uh, cooking became more and more dominated by fear more and more dominated by worry. Do you, do you know, uh, you see this in maybe your parents or your grandparents as they get older, the decisions that they make are more and more dominated by fear and worry. Well, one Christmas, my grandmother was sure that the roast beef would not be done uh, by the time we were going to eat it at noon, so she got up at 5 in the morning and put the roast beef in the oven so it would be done. Um, when she served it to us about noon, it was shoe leather. Uh, what do you say at that moment to your dear grandmother who wants to please you with her food and who has a 75-year track record of serving excellent meals to her family? What do, you, what do you say to your grandmother here over this shoe leather? You say, thanks, Grandma. We really appreciate it. It's not what the Bible means when it says we honor God. We don't flatter Him. Honoring God does not mean flattering Him for a mediocre performance. Uh, in order to protect God's feelings. Flattering him doesn't mean we tolerate his class because we're embarrassed that we got in trouble and it's just something that we have to do. You know, this happens on Sunday morning. Well, the plate's here. I guess I just have to put something in it and it won't nearly be as interesting as watching as the football game. It won't be nearly as fulfilling as the movie we saw last night, but we just kind of have to. It's just what you do. Biblical honor is actually more like the fans of the Grateful Dead. Again, I feel I need to explain. <laughs> um, this is an area which I'm not an expert. Some of you will not be surprised by that. But a few months ago, I listened to an interview with a self-professed deadhead. A deadhead, of course, is someone who's a, a tremendous fan of the band a Grateful Dead. And he talked about his collections, uh, his collection of tapes and records. The Grateful Dead were among the bands who in the 60s and 70s uh, allowed concert go goers to record their concerts. So there are tapes, recordings floating around uh, the world of Grateful Dead songs. And devoted fans trade them, buy them, borrow them, steal them, and argue over which one is the greatest. Um, that which, one is, which concert has the best recording of this song ever? 
There, there are websites where these songs can be studied and listened to and where you can read uh, arguments and posts about which concert in the 50-year in history of the band, which one was the best. <laughs> they love the Grateful Dead, and we're going to talk about the Grateful Dead's excellence as much as we possibly can. Honoring God is not flattering Him to protect His feelings. It's not begrudgingly putting up with Him because you just have to, but that's the way it is. Honoring God means standing in continued awe of His ongoing greatness. Which of His attributes, which of His deeds is the best? We're not sure because God is continually and perpetually amazing. The problem is that we are not inclined to honor God that way. We are naturally inclined to dishonor God. God is our competitor for honor. He's not amazing. He's boring. He's not fulfilling. He stops us from having the fun that we want to. Thinking about him is like eating shoe leather beef. He's unpalatable. He's like drinking unsweetened iced tea. Nobody does that by choice. This is, and our confession, our common confession as we meet together in the morning, is, this morning, is that we have dishonored God. We have dishonored God in thought and word and deed. We have not worshipped Him as we ought. We lead Godless lives. Not Godless in the sense of horrifically violent or grossly immoral, but Godless, lives in which He doesn't matter very much. Lives that are... Uh, in which he has no controlling influence. It comes naturally to us. Those precious children that are being cared for in our church have not a thought for God. Uh, we, we, we teach them about him. We teach them about his awesomeness and his wonder. You know that they don't think that because uh, among the first words that they say, they say, mine, mine, mine. They don't say his, his, his. Right? We're just not naturally inclined to, to honor God, and it has consequences for being a creature in the world that he has made. Kevin Long was a center for the Tennessee Titans uh, several years ago. Uh, he played college ball under Bobby Bowden at Florida State University. He was interviewed once by the uh, Tennessean newspaper, and uh, he said that Coach Bowden used to tell stories about his life all the time. Here's one that he repeated to them um, uh, often. Uh, Bowden played uh, baseball in college, and he never hit a home run through his career until finally one day he hit uh, one right down the uh, right field line and into the corner, and he started running. And he he rounded first base, and he looked. The third base coach was waving him on, and he went to second base and waving him on third base, and he touched home, made it there. The dugout came out. They gave him high fives. They were cheering all around. Then he noticed in the field the pitcher got the ball, threw it to the first baseman who stepped on the bag and the umpire called him out. He never touched first base. As he was running around the bases, he skipped first base. Bobby Bowden used to say to his players over and over again, if you don't take care of first base, it doesn't matter what you do. If you don't honor the Lord first, it doesn't matter what else you do. God's worthy of honor. That's at the foundation of this passage that we come to in which we see this family not honoring God. There's two things that I want you to see in this text. We're going to talk about, first of all here, how to dishonor God. We're going to talk about that. Two easy steps, even, for dishonoring God. 
Then we're going to talk about, as we go through this here, what happens to those who dishonor God? What are the consequences we should consider this morning? Now, here we go. First, how to dishonor God two ways. First, replace obedience to God with catering to your desires. Replace obedience to God with catering to your desires. This passage indicts the sons of Eli uh, because they have allowed their desires for two things to control their lives, to to replace uh, disobedience to God. Their desire for food and their desire for sex are the things that are controlling them in this passage. Now, according, let's talk about food first. According to the law in the Hebrew Scriptures, the priests were allowed to take, that was part of their pay, some of the meat that had been offered on the altars. That was a legitimate part of their um, uh, pay that God had prescribed in the law. Uh, but what's happening here is they're taking it at the wrong time in the wrong way. I confess Um, This passage is a little bit different than any of the descriptions in Leviticus about how offerings were made. I'm not exactly sure um, how this boiling of the meat works out, but they should not have been doing what they're doing with this fork, sticking it in and taking what they wanted. It's not okay. And even worse, uh, it's not okay for them to take the meat with the fat still in it The fat very clearly belongs to God. It is to be burned on the altar. It is not theirs. And they say, we want want it raw. We want to roast the meat with fat in it. Uh, And if you don't give it to us, we're going to take it from you. Uh, Verse 17 tells them, This sin of the young men was very great in the Lord's sight, for they were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. We need to come back to that phrase, very great, in just a minute. It's, it's actually quite important in this passage. But, but notice here, their, their appetite for food is overwhelming their obedience to God. And actually, it's interesting, the people who are objecting to this, they're more honorable than the priests. They know God's law better, or at least they're willing to follow it. No, 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 don't take this. We're, we're going to take it. Now, uh, this passage... Um, um, uh, well, let's, let's go on here. Their desire for sex is mentioned in verse 22. Now, Eli, who was very old, heard about everything his sons were doing to all Israel and how they slept with the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Now, who are these women and what are they doing? Um, they're not mentioned at all in the book of Leviticus, but the book of Exodus mentions female servants who serve at the tabernacle. Uh, look at Exodus 38.8. I wrote it down there here. They made the bronze basin and its bronze stand, they're, they're making the temple, the tabernacle here, from the mirrors of the women who served at the entrance to the tent of meeting. Isn't that interesting? Uh, I, I have not noticed this before, that mentioned there in Exodus 38. Uh, do you remember last week we talked about Nazarite vows? If you wanted to uh, have a particular time where you lived out a great devotion to God in a particular way, um, you could take a Nazarite vow. Paul, the Apostle Paul, it appears, took a temporary Nazarite vow. Samuel had a permanent, lifelong Nazarite vow. People could do this. And one commentator speculates that these women who are serving at the tabernacle are young women who, before they enter uh, motherhood and and, uh, get married and start having children, they would take a Nazarite vow for a period of time and they would serve in the tabernacle. That's wonderful. That's great. But Eli's sons... We're treating them like cult prostitutes. 
They stole food and they stole women that belonged to God. There's another Phineas in the Bible. Uh, this is not the only Phineas in the Bible. Phineas's great, great, great grand uncle, uh, when he was near the tabernacle, the, the book of Numbers tells us about him, one time he was near the tabernacle and he saw an Israelite man committing immorality with, an, with a Moabite woman and he was so incensed over this immorality that he took a stake and speared them both to the ground. This is quite a different story than this Phineas here. There was a young man uh, who was once brought before Alexander the Great and his commanding officer command, uh, uh, condemned him for being a, a coward. And he was brought before Alexander the Great for cowardice. And Alexander the Great looked at him and said, Young man, what is your name? And the young man, afraid, not surprising, said, Alexander. And Alexander the Great looked at him and roared at him. And he said, You need to change your name or change your behavior. Phineas, you need to change your name or you need to change your behavior. These sins are very great. Now, one of the ways that we understand this is by contrast. I wonder, did you notice how the, the passage talks about Eli and his sons and then Samuel, then Eli and his sons and Samuel, and then Eli and his sons? Did you notice that, that interruption of Samuel here? That's there intentional, and it's there to show us a contrast between Samuel and his family and Eli and his family. It highlights uh, Eli's family's crimes by showing you Samuel's family honor. Um, For example, uh, well, verse 17 just ends, doesn't it? They were treating the Lord's offering with contempt. But Samuel, he wasn't treating the Lord's offering with contempt. He was ministering before the Lord. He's wearing an ephod, which is mentioned down later. That's a a priestly garment. And it talks about this robe. It's so nice. (laughs) His mother made him a robe, took it to him. Samuel's very subtle here. The Bible's very subtle. I think Samuel is trying to communicate to us by that how dearly Hannah felt this, that she, ha- she gave her son to the Lord. She, Samuel belongs to the Lord. She had promised him to the Lord. He, she gave him to the Lord. He grew up in the temple, not at her house. And, but every year when she goes, she gives him a new little robe because this, she, loves, she loves this boy. She misses him. The other thing that this robe actually indicates is, uh, well, a robe is, is pretty important. Later, Samuel's going to wear a robe that Saul is going to tear. We'll talk about that later. Actually, in the Bible, clothing someone like this is a way that they receive honor. Um, Jacob loved Joseph more than any of his sons, and how did he show it? He gave him a robe, a coat of many colors. When, David, uh, when Saul welcomes David later in Samuel into his family as his son-in-law, he clothes him with, pre, with, uh, with royal garments. He gives him this robe. In the Bible, this is a way to show honor to someone, to clothe them this way. It makes me think of uh, what the Bible says about the Lord Jesus and how it emphasizes the fact that when he was on the cross, he was disrobed. His clothes were divided among the soldiers except the one piece that they couldn't tear uh, and they gambled over it. He was dishonored. Here we see Samuel uh, being honored and cared for by his mother. Um, Now, notice here, verse 21 says, 
The boy Samuel grew up in the presence of the Lord. That phrase, presence of the Lord, is very important. The presence of the Lord is where Moses received the Ten Commandments, in the presence of the Lord. Psalm 130 says that in the presence of the Lord is the place of unfailing love and unconditional redemption. That's what happens in the presence of the Lord. And that's where Samuel is. And he is growing up in it. That word, growing up, literally means becoming great. He's becoming great. Verse 21, Samuel is becoming great in the presence of the Lord. In contrast to that, the sins of Eli, of Hophni and Phinehas are very great. Same word, verse 17 and verse 21. Samuel's great in the Lord. They're very great in their ability to treat the Lord with contempt. You see the contrast here? Well, it's not hard to see, I don't think. This is another place in the Bible in which people are destroyed by their desires. Uh, at the end of Proverbs 5, the author of Proverbs is talking about uh, uh, the beauty of uh, physical intimacy and in marriage, and he says, be intoxicated with your wife. And then he issues this warning at the end of Proverbs 5, verse 20, why, my son, be intoxicated by another man's wife? Why embrace the bosom of a wayward woman? For your ways are in full view of the Lord, and he examines all your paths. The evil deeds of the wicked ensnare them. The cords of their sins hold them fast. For lack of discipline they will die, led astray by their own great folly. Your desires will kill you. Uncontrolled, it will kill you. Titus 2, I think it's Titus 2, 11 and 12. Listen to this. Um, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. And the grace of God teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. You have desires which for the sake of your life you must deny. And it is part of God's kindness, His grace, that He teaches you to do this. In fact, it's by God's grace that He begins to change your desires. All of the disciplines that we talk about as a church that we should engage in as followers of Jesus, attending worship and reading the Bible and praying and fasting and confessing your sins to one another, meeting together with other believers for accountability and growth, all of those are intended to put us into positions where the God by His Spirit might change our desires. It's one of the ways that I try to pray before I read the Bible on my tablet. God Use this reading of the Word to change my desires. By your Spirit, use your Word to change what I think, what I feel, what I want. Someday you're going to desire only what is good for you. <laughs> That'll be a great day. Someday you will only desire what is good for you. Um, why is pornography so much more attractive than prayer? Why do we desire that? You have broken desires. Someday you will only desire what is good and blessed. But until then, we live with a sense of deprivation. Now, it's deprivation of what's killing you, but it's still deprivation. Dishonoring God means acting like God has no authority over your life and ceding your life to the control of your desires. Now, second, here's a second way to dishonor God. Replace reverence for God with dependence on other things. Replace reverence for God with dependence on other things. That's a very general statement. We can be specific. In this passage, the specifics are Eli and his sons and his dependence on his sons. 
verse 29, God, or the man of God asks Eli, why do you honor your sons more than me? Eli has replaced honor for God with honor for his sons. This is not a passage where the main emphasis is on parenting. Uh, the main emphasis of this passage is on honoring God. But parenting is the issue, uh, is the, the example here, and it's an issue actually all the way through Samuel. And we see in the book of Samuel fathers failing in their discipline of their sons. I'll show that to you in just a minute, but think about here Eli's rebuke to his sons. Verses 23 to 25, it's so anemic. He never mentions their, son, their sin specifically. He doesn't actually remove them from their office. He had the authority to do that. He could have removed them from the office. Some people wonder if, verse 22, when it says, Eli was very old, if that's not an indication from Samuel that his discipline came too little and too late. He hadn't disciplined up to him to this point in time. The passage is very clear, and it blames Eli for this, for what they've done. Verse 12, it says, Eli's sons were scoundrels. They're not named there. They're Eli's sons. Scoundrels. Actually, the text literally says, without a verb, it says, sons of Eli, sons of wickedness or worthlessness. Whose boys are these? Well, they're worthless boys. They're wicked's boys. Oh, they're Eli's boys. What does that mean? Eli's worthless. Actually, uh, Eli's, he, he accuses, same word here, he accuses Hannah of being a wicked woman. You're a wicked woman because I think you're praying drunk in the tabernacle. He's so, he doesn't have any discernment to know that, Eli is, or that Hannah is not a daughter of wickedness, but he doesn't recognize that he's raising his own sons of wickedness. Same word, deliberate contrast there. Eli's not the only faulty father in Samuel. Samuel's own sons are not worthy men. So there's Eli and his sons, Samuel and his sons. Saul had a son named Jonathan who was an honorable man who wanted to do God's will, and Saul punished him for trying to do the right thing. Oh, Saul. David, David and his sons. One of David's sons sexually assaulted his sister, and the text very clearly says David didn't say anything. They had this pattern all the way through the book of Samuel. Eli, Samuel, David don't discipline their sons. Saul disciplines his son for the wrong reason. There's something odd too, another pattern, if we think broadly about this book and how it works um, there are these four families, and into four, all four of these families, an adopted son comes who, who supplants the natural son. So think about it. There's Eli, and he's got Hophni and Phinehas, and, and, and Samuel comes into his house. It grows up in, Samuel, in Eli's house, and instead of Hophni and Phinehas becoming leaders, Samuel does. There's Samuel, he's got sons, and God kind of brings Saul into his life. Samuel's like a, a father to uh, Saul, and, and Samuel's sons don't lead Israel, Saul does. Saul has a son named Jonathan, but David becomes his son-in-law, and Jonathan doesn't rule, David does. David's firstborn son, Absalom, 
uh, doesn't rule. Instead, Solomon, the son who comes from that relationship that started so terribly, becomes king. Pattern all the way in. There's this pattern in the book of Samuel. Um, Peter Leifhart suggests that it's Samuel's way of preparing us for the unusual way in which God's son comes to earth. He's born to a virgin. Well, that's not normal. Well, there hasn't been normality in this family for a long, long time. Now, why didn't Eli discipline his sons? We'll go back to the story again. I think the answer is that he was getting food from them. He, he was happy. He enjoyed the benefits that their actions were bringing them more than he cared about the choices that they were making. It's a dependence issue. When you live your life for what your children provide for you, you will fail to discipline them and dishonor God. That's what the passage is teaching. It's not the only trouble by far that families can face. That's what's happening here. The benefit is, is tangible. Um, Eli wants fatty meat. He wants to smell that, he wants to hear that fat sizzle on his barbecue. Maybe for you the, the, tangent, the, the, the benefits are intangible. Your children give you purpose or they give you significance or they make you happy or they help bolster your reputation because of their success. My son, my son. Or you enjoy the power that comes from controlling them. You will serve your children only as you love them from the overflow of your joy in God. But if you need your children, you will crush them. I think that's why Jesus demanded us to love him more than we love our sons and daughters. He says that a couple times in the passage. Um, uh, we need to love, we need to, in comparison to how we love him, we need to hate our children. Or we need to love him more. Now usually we read that passage and it sounds so harsh. We think to ourselves, phew. Jesus, he's so self-centered. That's our temptation. We never say that out loud, but we think to ourselves, wow, he's, oh. Did you ever stop to think that maybe Jesus made that command because he knew that if we loved our children more than him, we would crush them? That he issued that command for the good of our families, not just for the sake of his God-centeredness? I don't have this mastered you don't have this mastered. Would you pray with me? Would you pray for me that I would hate my children's sin more than I love the joy that they bring me? Or at least that I would hate their sin more than the shame that comes from acknowledging their sin? Now, let's move on this morning and let's talk about the destruction that comes here. What happens to those who dishonor God? The answer, devastating destruction. Devastating destruction. Uh, Let's think about verse 25 for a minute because it deserves some thought. Um, At the end of verse 25, it says, Hophni and Phinehas, Eli's sons, did not listen to their father's rebuke, for it was the Lord's will to put them to death. Robert Bergen says that here's definitive proof in the Bible that your family relations will not save you from God's judgment. If your, family was, if your father was a priest, it doesn't matter. If your mother was a Sunday school teacher, it does not matter. If your grandmother was a prayer warrior, it does not matter. Family connections will not save you from God's wrath. 
This verse reminds a lot of people of what God did to Pharaoh. Pharaoh, we, um, his story is just in the Bible, a few chapters, a few pages before. Five times it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God apparently here in this passage has stopped Hophni and Phinehas' ears. It's a sober passage. John Piper says that this verse teaches us that it's possible to sin so long and so grievously that the Lord will not grant repentance. Repentance is not a guarantee. 2 Timothy 2.25 is about false teachers. It says, Appointments must be gently instructed in the hope that God will grant them repentance. Maybe God won't grant them repentance. There's no guarantee in the future that you will have time to repent. This passage also tells us that there is a difference between what God commands and what God decrees. We struggle with this sometimes. There are things that God commands us to do in the Bible, and there are things that God indicates that are His will, His, is what is going to happen because of His high and holy purposes. Well, think about this here. God commands Hophni and Phinehas to listen to their sons. To, sorry. I'll say it again. God commands Hophni and Phinehas to listen to their father. That's what Exodus 20 says. They're to honor their father and mother. They should obey their father. They should listen. The text tells us it is the Lord's will that they not listen. There is God's will of command and there is God's will of decree, his decisions about what will happen for his high and holy purposes. Listen to what John Piper says. Um, I want to read this paragraph to you. It's lengthy a little bit because I, I, it might help you and encourage you when you pray for your own unrepentant children. Listen. I suppose that Eli prayed for his sons to be changed. That surely is how he should have prayed. God commanded that children obey their parents. So we should pray that they will obey. But God here decreed that Hophni and Phinehas would not obey, but rather be slain. When something like this happens, which we do not ordinarily know ahead of time, you don't see these things in advance, while we are crying out to God for change, the answer of God is not, I don't love you, nor is it, I don't hear you, nor is it even, I don't approve of how you're praying. Rather, the answer is, even when we can't hear it, I have wise and holy purposes in not overcoming this sin and in not granting repentance. You do not see these purposes now. Trust me, I know what I'm doing. I love you. Piper says, these are the hardest times of submission to the will of God. We cry, we ache, we plead for change in our children or spouse or parents or colleagues or neighbors. We make our case with God that this is what his, his word says, that this is what his revealed will of holiness and faith and love. We pray that they come forth in their lives, but year after year we see no change. Oh, the test to faith this is. But let us not join in the rebellion. He's saying... Your, your children, 
um, or whoever you're praying for, your spouse, your neighbor, your parents, your friend, they, they've walked away from God and they're running hard in the opposite direction and you plead with God and say, please God, I know that it is your will that they turn. I know that from your word that this is what you delight in. So on the basis of your word, I'm pleading with you for this. And when, when you don't see change, God says, don't join in their rebellion. Don't decide, fine, I'm going to walk away from God too. Don't do that, he says. I'll continue. Let us, in those instances, put our hands on our mouths and unclench our fists and prostrate ourselves before the Lord of infinite wisdom and justice and love. And let us say, when all our tears are spent, just like Eli, he's going to quote Eli, may the Lord do what seems good to him. It was the Lord's will to put them to death. The specifics of this destruction come here starting in verse 27 when this man of God appears. What's a bad sign in the Bible when a man of God appears? Same thing happens in the book of Judges. Right at the beginning, man of God appears and, 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 and pronounces judgment on the nation. Nathan comes before David. We'll find this out in a few months. Nathan comes before God, David and appears to him because of what he's done. This man of God comes to Eli the principle, of course, is verse 30. I will honor those who honor me, but those who despise me will be disdained. Here's what the disdain is going to look like in your life, Eli. Verse 31, no one's going to reach old age. Eli's probably in his 90s right now. None of his descendants are going to live this long. This is a terrible judgment at this point in time because remember, in this culture, the older you are, the higher your power and the higher your honor and if no one in Eli's family is going to live to be old, God is saying to them, you're going to be powerless and have no influence for generations. Eli's family is going to be replaced in the priestly line. One of his cousins is going to become high priest, and it's his cousin's kids who are going to be sons who are going to be priests. They have been feasting on stolen meat up to this point in time, remember? But at the end of the passage, verse 36, it says they're going to be begging for bread. Huh. It's another stark reminder in this passage of God's dismantling power. Here it's very physical and it's very earthly. It actually points us, though, to the spiritual equivalent that the Lord Jesus described those who refuse to honor God are consigned to hell where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched always on fire always decaying never consumed never ever ever consumed I warn you friends at our church we, we want to celebrate the depth of God's great kindness his amazing grace he welcomes those who come to him but for those who hear him and refuse to come, there is no hope. There is nothing but the promise of devastating, devastating destruction. Now I wonder if you notice how this passage ends. It's very unusual, I think. There's going to be a new priestly house. Will you remember this uh, when we get to it? Several months from now, the, the use of this word house, when we get to talk about David's house and how God promises David a house, a dynasty. Well, here's, there's going to be a new priestly house. Verse 35 talks about, I will firmly establish his priestly house. There's going to be a new priest. And what's he going to do? 
He's going to minister before my anointed one as always. Oh, God's anointed king. Here he is. Even at the end of this passage, this terrible passage, God's going to fix things. How's he going to do it? He's going to make it right through his anointed king who's going to have a priest uh, uh, ruling. He's going to appoint this priest. Actually, this prophecy comes true in 1 Kings chapter 2. Solomon, David's son, is the king, and he uh, 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 removes a man by the name of Abiathar, one of Eli's descendants, from being the priest, and he makes Zadok his priest in his place. It happens literally here in this passage. But even so, we, we, more so, we remember God's great king. He's the Lord Jesus. He's the priest king. He, more than anyone else, does everything that is uh, in God's heart and mind. He fixes everything. He makes it all right. Eli, your family, if it's going to survive, is going to need to depend on this priest that is to come. You're going to ask them. You're going to plead with them for food. He's the king with the priest who makes everything right. It's true of the Lord Jesus. He makes everything right. All dishonoring of God is dealt with by the Lord Jesus. All of it is punished. For his people, it is punishment that takes place on his own cross. For those who refuse to believe, the punishment comes at his appearing. Honor him. Let's honor. Let us hail God's great king, brothers and sisters. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and this passage is, we confess it is uh, sobering. It it makes us think about um, our families. It makes us think about those that we love. We we think about Eli's accountability for what, what he did. Lord, we confess to you We do not honor you as we ought to. We've dishonored you in thought and word and in deed. We do not worship you as we ought. And thus we are worthy of your devastating, destructive judgment. How thankful we are to you for the Lord Jesus who was dishonored in our place. He who bore our sins on the cross He's our great high priest. He's our soon coming king. He is our only hope. Oh Lord, we pray that you would make our congregation a place where we triumph to celebrate this great hope. That that our congregation in this community would be a beacon of celebration of your great anointed king, the Lord Jesus that you would multiply our efforts to make him well known. Thank you that you forgive us upon our confession of sin. And even as we say, we have dishonored you, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, who is the atoning sacrifice for all of our sins. It is in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.